Hi Teamsters, I'm Carrie Ann. And I'm Allison, and this is Podcast Without an Audience, where two friends pick two topics and find intersections. Or not. Cheers. <laughs> what Cheers. a way to start. <laughs> what a way to start. Okay, so we've been kind of waiting to like talk about this, so I'm really excited that we're doing this, but we are finally ready to announce our recipes for season two. I mean, we've finally, we've been sending them out. People are starting to post about them. So the cat's kind of out of the bag Cat's out of the bag. It's time to, like, fucking talk about it. Well, we're not going to get, like, detail. You know, we got to keep it, right, like, right, right. secretive. It's, like, season two, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So no one, like, openly shared season one's pasta recipe. Salsa. Salsa uh-huh. recipe. <laughs> <laughs> pasta sauce, salsa. Uh-huh. You get where I was going with that. Yeah. So same thing with season two, but, you know. So, for season two, we are finally ready to announce we are doing cocktails. Yes, ma'am, we are. And there's a couple little things in there where you're able... It's like a couple different pairings. There's a couple cocktails, a couple, you know... So, we've got our favorites on there. We won't tell you what they are. Their names are fucking hilarious, and we hope that you appreciate them. I will go ahead and give a spoiler. Can I can I give a little spoiler that mine's wrong? Maybe just like just like a dip, like a toe dip in the water of sin. There may be whiskey. There may be whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> there may not be. There there's some other there's a little bit of something there for everybody, which I think um I think everybody's gonna find something. It. Yeah. There's a non-alcoholic option too. So yep. there's just there's literally something there for everybody. Um so if you haven't and you feel so inclined, head over to patreon.com and search for podcasts without an audience. We have fixed our, you remember in season one where we were like selling nudes? <laughs> <laughs> they asked me, they're like, I said, like, explicit what was that content. Explicit or content. I was like, I mean, we our podcast yeah. explicit, yeah. Kind of. So anyway, you can find us pretty easily. Um, now that or, you can find us at least. Right. Um, you, you'll have access to uh, the season two recipes. We still haven't decided about whether we're releasing season one's recipes, but I think it'll be a case by case basis. Sure. For those really super loyal Patreon folks. Yeah. If you jump in the DMs, send us a really great reason as to why you should get both recipes. Leave us cards. a five star review. Leave us a five star review and you'll get both. How about that? All the things. Um so yeah, super excited about that. Can you believe we started this podcast three we, years ago? Yeah, we started dreaming about it in we twenty released- no, we go back to like 2019 with a bunch of folks, right? But we released in 2021. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was it 21? So that was two years. Yeah. But we were dreaming years. about it before then. Yeah. Okay. We had some topics. Time Interesting flies. conversations. 100%. Yep. 100%. 100p. Um, hmm? 100p. 100p. The, I've been kind of diving into some other like podcast adjacent things recently have you seen the soft underbelly interviews on youtube no i have not they're really okay so it's it's an interview style channel and um this this guy kind of interviews it's a lot of sex workers it's a lot of people who have like these really interesting life stories to tell yes 
Can I tell you what I thought it was real quick? Yes. I thought it was just people going to be rubbing dogs' bellies. No, no. Like interviewing <laughs> while, you know, rubbing a puppy. Soft no. underbelly. There's rub. no there's no puppies that I've seen. That's so far. But it's these really fascinating interviews with just people who have these like really insane life stories. And so I've been kind of watching that channel on repeat because you can kind of like set it aside it's kind of like a podcast and it's it's interview style so it's all audio of course there's body language that you could see but that's kind of like what i've been into this week oh yeah well that's really interesting i'll have to check it out anything interesting for you i know you've been making a lot of earrings yeah so i've been on an earring kick for a minute so i have my queer as craft crochet and knitting thing Mm -hmm. that i've been doing for like a year now. Mm-hmm. It started out with these like super great pillows that say fuck on them. Yeah. And those went like gangbusters. Yeah. Um, so I did most of the pride flags. And then um, I've been knitting and crocheting since I was a kid. So I was just like looking for other things that I can make gay, trying to, you know, turn the world into rainbows. And I found this cute little earring pattern. It was like that can be made gay. And now I have rainbow sunflower earrings. I know, and they're so cute too. We'll we'll post some on on the social medias. No, but they're really well done, and they're a good size. They're like yeah. they're like a pretty big earring. They're they make a statement, but not but they're too really big. light. Yeah, they're really light, and I mean they're a good size in the fact where you know if you're gonna wear your rainbow earrings, you, right? You, you, you're making a statement. People gotta see them. Yeah, people gotta see them. So they're like, is it bigger than a bread box? No, <laughs> but it's bigger. It's probably like a silver dollar. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'd say. But I would like to give one Miss Allison a shout out for mm. helping me. I gave you like one of the first pair I made. Mm-hmm. So Allie's been giving me feedback on like what to change and like, you know. No, they're super tricks. cute. So I love them. But yeah, go check those out because they're fun to make. Also, as a Patreon perk, while supplies last, because I don't know, like I have ADHD, so I'm hyper fixated on them right now. But while supplies last, we might be sending out a few pair of rainbow sunflower earrings to some select patrons who would like to, you know, leave us a five star. Let's say do all the things. Do all the things. So five star review, Patreon, and share us on your social media. 100%. Like post something about us and let us know that you've done all three. Or we'll see that you've done all three, and we will uh, send you some earrings. We can all be twinsies. Yep. And please share pictures, too. Yes. Yeah. Cute, cute, cute. They're cute, cute, cute. And, you, you know, Pride season's going to be Off right the around chain. the corner. And it's like, you know, it's in like five seconds. It's like my favorite holiday. The I whole know. month. I know. And then I get to celebrate again because of where we live. It's in a different month than actual Pride season. Mm-hmm. So I just get to celebrate longer. Yeah. It's like the, the whole... Sec, it's like court. It's like all Q three, basically. (laughs) (laughs) All of Q three is Pride season, Uh and it's my favorite holiday. (laughs) Well, speaking of being proud about shit, oh, that was a fun transition. (laughs) I love that. I'm here for it. Yeah. What are we talking about today? What is our psychology topic? Our topic is now missing from my computer. Hang on one second. Do oh, found it. Uh, our psychology topic, I'm so glad you asked. That's the wrong button. Mm. So does anyone else have this problem where you go from like using a basic computer for work every day to using your Apple like MacBook for 
life events, like podcasting, and you forget how they work. Yeah, they do. They're they're opposites. They're okay. I'm over here on my tablet, just trying to piece <laughs> shit together, just trying to get by. Okay, so today we are collecting topics okay. about collecting. Oh, yep. So we're going to ramble over a few different things, but they're all connected, though they should not be conflated. We are going to talk about ownership, collecting, and hoarding. Oh, wow. I know you've been begging me to do hoarding since like the very beginning. Hoarding is fucking fascinating. Okay, so I listened to this podcast. Hang on, I'm going to pull up the name of the podcast because I want to give them a shout out. But I was listening to this podcast, and they were talking about ownership and collecting. Mm -hmm. And it was so, so fascinating. So I have a couple of quotes from that actual podcast. But I was like, what an interesting lead-in to to hoarding. Mm -hmm. So the name of the podcast is Speaking of Psychology. Mm -hmm. And like every week, they have a psychology topic and how it connects to life. But it's done by the American Psychological Association. Oh, wow. So they're super legit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Soup's Way legit. more legit than us. <laughs> <laughs> so definitely check them out after you listen to this episode. Mm-hmm. We should definitely be, be the priority here, though. <laughs> okay. So we all like our things and the things that we perceive as ours, right? Like you like your apartment, but you also like your special chair at the dining room table that no one else sits in because it's yours. yours. But it's not, like, actually yours. Right. Okay. So, first question, out of the gate, what is your favorite possession? Like, do you have a favorite possession? Mm, In my home, there are several things that are, like, mine. Like, that blanket carrying was cold, and I was like, girl, let me hook you up with the best blanket in the house. Yo, it's so cozy. So cozy, right? So cozy. I know nothing about the Dallas Cowboys, by the way. Neither do I. That's a, It's a race thing. Please mm-hmm. don't stop listening to us. Don't judge him. <laughs> I was like, babe, the Panthers have been to the Super Bowl more times since the 90s than the Cowboys, but anyway. The Panthers? Yeah. I thought you said pandas for a second. I was no. like, there's a team called the pandas? Life just got so much more interesting. <laughs> right. There is now. Okay. Sorry, um, continue. They're extinct. Yeah, so I, I like certain blankets. I have um, uh, like rocks that I hold at work that are specifically like stones that mm-hmm. I have at my at my desk. Mm-hmm. I have a shirt that goes over my face at night to block the sunlight, Ooh. which it's super soft and it's it's over there. I'm thinking about the rock that you have that's holding up your bed. Can we talk about that for a second? Because it's, it's like a prized possession it's still of yours. There. I know it is. I was. We were talking about moving, and I was like, we should probably take this bedroom set. And Ray was like, it's fucking broken. It right. is held up by a rock. Still, this is like two years later. And um, I was like, yeah, but we can like, blah, blah, blah. and he's like, no. But this is a rock like from your parents' house, and they were moving, and you went and got this rock because it had like sentimental value. Yeah. And you brought this rock back to your apartment. I think it was a doorstop for a minute until your bed broke, right? It was, um, no, it's always been outside, but then okay. she had to come inside. Um, right. So she's she didn't really get a, a chance to have a life outside of the, the bed incident, but she's mm-hmm. literally holding up like the middle kind of... <laughs> Joist of the bed. Yeah, yeah, the bed. But she's it's a, like a really large quartz. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And she thick, honey. Mm-hmm. She had thick quartz. Mm-hmm. Very square. Think of like a cube of cheese. <laughs> so we have a cube of cheese quartz. Mm-hmm. Um, That's our full name. Thank you. Yep. And a t-shirt, blankets. Like you like cozy things. You like comforting things that remind you of home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like some of my favorite, I have a teddy bear that I've had since the day I was born. 
Um, That's wholesome as fuck. Thank you. Thank you. One of the kids is like holding on to it for me right now, Mm -hmm. which is super cute. I think that might be one of my favorite possessions. And then I, I mean, we'll talk about collections in a minute. So we'll come back to some of the others. So other things that we own are, like I said, a favorite seat at the table, Mm -hmm. right? Or a spot on the couch. A spot on the couch. Like I go into the office every, you know, a couple of times a week usually. And Whenever we're all in the office, we go into like this big conference room and I have one specific chair that I'm like, this is my seat. Yeah. Even though it's to the door, like my back is to the door and usually I hate that, Mm -hmm. but all the windows are in front of me Mm -hmm. and I can see the front. I mean, it's just a great seat. Yeah. It's the best spot in the house. So I don't own it, but like it's my chair. Right. Yeah. So we're also going to talk about owning things that we don't actually own or can't own, but we feel like we do. Like kids, for example. Mm-hmm. So I would, I want to hear your thoughts on this because I was at a work thing recently and we we're doing like the grab a ball and you throw the ball and wherever your thumb lands is the question you have to answer. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking yeah. about? So one of the questions was, what's your favorite possession? And the person who answered this was like, oh, my kids, obviously. Like, Oh, what a w- that's weird. It was weird to me too. I was like... They're humans. You you can't own them. But, I mean, I get how they feel like possessions. Anyways, I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that, too. Yeah, the answer is no. That's a no for me. Okay, heard. So, Dr. Russell Belk of York University, where they, I don't think, have Rate My Professor <laughs> as a follow-up from last week. <laughs> he actually has a really long quote, so we're going to break it up a little bit. But Russell Belk says, Ownership can be both a legal status involving rights and obligations with regard to to property, as well as a proprietary feeling towards some person, place, or thing. I've been interested in possession and possessions, so the latter sense of ownership has been my focus. I have also been interested in sharing possessions without permanent transfer of possession or ownership. With expanding intellectual property rights, the rise of virtual goods, and the expansion of the scope of what we consider to be ownable, the concept of ownership continues to evolve. I bet. So this is the podcast I was listening to, and the reason I wanted to talk about it is because Dr. Russell Belk is basically going into how the younger generation is going to see ownership differently than we did. So his point was about digital media, like movies, for example. You and I have vast movie collections, or we did at one point. Yeah. Like, I have a huge DVD collection. Yeah. Growing up, we had a massive VHS collection. And kids today, like, they buy something, but they buy it on Amazon Prime Video, or they have Netflix or Disney Plus. But so you own it, but it's invisible. It's not tangible. It's not tangible. Like, if you forget your password or get hacked, you just, like, you're out that movie. Right. So ownership is changing with this new generation and is viewed differently. So, like, we were, the other night, we were wanting to watch The Borrowers with the kids. Oh, cute. Right? I the, love the, the Borrowers. The 90s version? Yes. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I loved The Borrowers growing yeah. up, and so yeah. did my partner. So, we wanted to watch it, and we looked on Netflix and Disney Plus and all the places and could not find this thing anywhere, went to Amazon Prime and rented it for $3. And for us, like, that was a big deal. And we even talked about, like, do we buy it on Amazon Prime because we might want to watch it again? And the kids were like, why would you buy it? Like, just rent it. And it will show up on another 
streaming service eventually. Because they all seem to like rotate streaming services. Right. That's an interesting. For me, like there was a sense of I want to own it because I have this memory associated with it. Like I had a pet snake named after one of the characters from Mm -hmm. The Borrowers. But kids today or like the younger generation are just totally fine with this kind of abstract concept of ownership. Mm Mm-hmm. And I thought that was so cool. Yeah. Like, super Like, it's weird. not yours to own, kind of. Yeah, yeah. Which makes sense. I mean, we don't own it. We right. We just own a copy. Yeah, but right? like a digital copy. Right. That that does still seem weird. Yeah. I don't think I've ever bought a digital copy of anything. I have digital copies of the Harry Potters. Oh. Just because not every TV in the house has a DVD player. Mm-hmm. And you have to be able to watch them. I all needed at to be able times. to watch all the Harry Potters at all times. Fair. But I think that those are the only ones I've bought. Okay. So we're going to start kind of building this intersectional web. So mm-hmm. we've got ownership and this kind of interesting idea of like truly owning something versus kind of abstractly owning something versus digitally owning something. Right. Mm-hmm. And then we have like the emotion around ownership. Yeah. So the emotional part of me was like, I want to buy the borrowers because I have a memory associated with the borrowers. Mm -hmm. But really, I didn't need to buy the borrowers. Like, we could just rent it. The chances of us watching it again more than once or twice are pretty low. Like, it's not the kid's favorite movie now. Right. But, like, we were cleaning out our closet yesterday and going through all the the literal clothes we own, right? And... Some of it was really easy to get rid of. And then other things I really struggled with. Yeah. So. Sparkjoy. Right. Dot com. Exactly. I read something recently that said Marie Kondo's house is like messy right now. I was oh, like, she a, a baby. how would people know? And B, like, wait to be judgmental. Let Marie be great. Yeah. She's allowed to have a messy house. Yeah. We all are, actually. Yeah. And thank goodness. Thank goodness. I just cleaned this up so you could come over. I appreciate And not disown me. I would never. We'll talk about that in a minute, too. (laughs) (laughs) Of all the people who would disown someone for being messy, I am not among them. (laughs) So we own things because they're practical. We own things because we use them or want to use them or anticipate using them. Like, you know, movies. Like, we anticipate watching them. If fried green tomatoes was only available to rent or buy on Amazon Prime, then you and I would have had to have bought it yeah five years ago and we would have saved a shit ton of money because we watched that joker (laughs) all the fucking time right so like there's thoughts about ownership but then there's emotional ownership so in cleaning out the closet i found this yellow old navy fleece Mm. like half zip up jacket i can hear the commercial in my brain right now (laughs) but it was my mom's and like i have a picture of her in it and like i have memories of her wearing it and then i stole it from her closet sorry mom i stole it from her closet when i was dog sitting once and now it's mine obviously obviously um but i never wear it because it's huge and not very attractive but i also don't want to get rid of it because i have so many memories with it so what'd you do oh it's definitely still in the closet oh yeah yeah without a doubt sparks joy yeah so which kind of, I guess, leads us into the conversation around clutter. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we have ownership and this cool concept of ownership, and then we have clutter, which are when possessions are disorganized and accumulate around living areas, right? So we have 
things that we might keep for emotional reasons because they're useful or because we anticipate needing them or they have value. If we have too many of those things, they become clutter. Yeah. Great. However, if you have enough of those things and they have something in common, Mm. is it clutter or or is it collecting? The first thing I ever collected, I collected two things growing up. <clears throat> okay, tell me about them. One was Wizard of Oz shit. Really? Yes. I did not know that about you. Yes. And then Betty Boop shit. That one I did know because so, of your Betty Boop pillowcase. Yes. Shout out to the Which Betty Boop my pillowcase. grandma made me and has no memory of actually making it for me. So this whole time <laughs> I've been like holding on to this. It had holes in it. I remember. For, yeah. And I was like, oh, I have to, you know, she made this for me. And one day I was like... Nana, like, I have this pillowcase and you made it for me. She, no memory. She's Aww. like, nope. great. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I can get rid of this now. But, um, yeah, those are the two things growing up that I collected. But I don't collect them. I don't collect anything anymore, I don't think. You don't have any collections? Besides Crystals? Stones, yeah. Stones, yeah. Candles, maybe? Do you have a candle collection? Not really. I burn them. You burn them so quickly. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I really like collecting. Right. Cooter Corner. Cooter Corner. Shout out Cooter Corner. Which we haven't done a Cooter Corner update recently. Mm-mm. Though I've been training my partner really well. We walked into a thrift shop the other day, and she immediately walked up to this, like, fig yeah. thing and showed it to me, and it was definitely a Cooter. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get it? No, no. No, we didn't. I live with children now, mm-hmm. so we can't be quite as obvious. That's not... I mean, the cabbage cooter is still... It's art, CA. <laughs> it's art. Oh, we definitely have some, mm-hmm. like, more abstract pieces. Like, a friend of mine bought this, like, clamshell thing. Mm-hmm. Obviously kept that. Yeah. Yeah. So Hello. So I collected teacups mm-hmm. for, like, a million years. And then my dad broke half of them <gasps> when he was trying to, like, In move a, a bookshelf. And he didn't want to, like, take all the teacups off the bookshelf. So he, like tried to push the bookshelf and they all fell off naturally but now i'm looking at these teacups i'm like what do i do with these because as an adult i have like two that i like that i keep at my house yeah but i don't even use those right i do have one for tea leaf reading well you have to keep that definitely stop that one we're in grave danger (laughs) it's the grim (laughs) (laughs) um but like what do you do with 40 plus teacups as an adult right Good, great question. Thank you. That's how you end up. You go into Goodwill one day, and you're like, "There are someone 40 just cleaned out their collection." Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, State sale, right? So I was talking to my mom about it, and she was like, "Well, don't get rid of them. I want them." And I'm like, "What is she going to do with them?" I hope use them. I mean, I have a few that I want to hold on to. Like, yeah. I have one that was hers when she was younger. I have one that I have a vivid memory of Jacob picking out for me when he was like five or six. Oh. Yeah, keep those. So I've got to keep, like, the sentimental ones. Do you actually drink tea or coffee out of them? I was a big tea drinker growing up. Tea drunker. Tea drunker. Tea drinker growing up. Tea drunker. So my birthday is in March, and it was always too cold to, like, do anything for my birthday. Mm -hmm. So throughout my elementary school years, we had tea parties for my birthday. And I would pull out my tea collection. That's sweet. And, like, we would make tea for everybody or apple cider and whatever. And, like, people would bring their dolls. I was really girly. That's cute. Yeah. It was super cute. We have pictures. I collect teacups. I collected angels for a little bit. Amen. Thank you. And books Mm, girl girl my book collection (laughs) 
off the chain. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just literally a couple of weeks ago took a huge load to Ed McKay's to, like, sell back some books because... Yeah, you gotta. It's ridiculous at this point. Mm-hmm. Like, I have some books that I have never and will never read that are from, like, my born again Christian days. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I'm holding on to them, except that the color of the spine matches my rainbow organization. Right. And chicken soup for the soul is right. just, you know, a must have. Oh, absolutely. And he's not, he's just not that into you or whatever. You have that book? Oh. Why on earth do you need that? <laughs> <laughs> I have trauma, Allie. Okay. I have trauma. I got it. Yep. Trauma so, bonded for life. <laughs> So collecting is interesting. Russell Belk talks more about this and breaks it into two categories. There's taxonomic or type A collecting, which is like a stamp collection or a coin collection. Mm -hmm. There's a very clear beginning and end. So like you are looking for one of each type. And once you have it, you don't hoard the coins. You like... You've completed your mission. You've completed your set. And then you can sell it and it's worth money or whatever. Like it's a very, very clear set um like art collectors you might have an art collector who's just collecting original degas paintings and they have the originals and then once they have their collection they're done i saw this thing or i read it i don't know where i got it but recently that 20 percent, like billionaires like 20 percent of their of their wealth they put into fine art i could see that Isn't because it? it i mean it just appreciates right isn't that wild it's so smart. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I don't know. Someone would have to tell me what constitutes it. but Someone with more money than you looking at it and saying that's fine. Great. So, so. anybody. <laughs> <laughs> then there's aesthetic collecting, which is like you collect yellow art or collecting books or collecting experiences. Love the idea of collecting experiences, by the way. Like, So an aesthetic collector who's collecting experiences like travel could just travel to different countries and collect the experience of going to each of these countries. Did you ever like have anybody in high school who was like collecting their like wristbands from concerts? That's kind of like what that would remind me of. Like Schmaline, you'd walk into their room in high school and they would have like just ticket stubs or like Mm -hmm. concert, you know, just like the ticket thing. Yeah, absolutely. That would be a really great one. Mm -hmm. A really great example. Like I collect or I kept my, what are they called? Playbills from Mm -hmm. different shows that I've been to throughout high school. Cause I went to so many and loved them. And then when I went to college, I was like, I'm never going to display these. Like, yeah, what do you, it's cool for the experience, but I don't need to like immortalize them, memorialize Mm -hmm. them forever. I had, Somebody, did I tell you, have I said this on the pod yet? Somebody that I used to date wanted to shadow box their rainbow, like a pair of shoes that they had, their rainbows. Super fun. Like the flip flops? Yes. Not like Converse Rainbow Pride Collection, but like, like why? I don't know. (laughs) Okay. So like those kinds of collections, I think are a lot of fun. Like I, so I started doing this thing when I was traveling, especially when I was traveling a lot where I got these wooden books like they're actually boxes but they look like a book and whenever I traveled I would paint the book to look like the flag of the country that I went to and then put all my little memorabilia in the box whoa yeah so I have one for Japan Germany France I did not do Canada because that was more recent oh Canada (laughs) 
but yeah, so like that was my way of like keeping little tokens yeah. without it becoming overwhelming. Right. That's a smart idea. Thank you. What a crafty bitch you are. I know, but now what the fuck do I do with these little wooden boxes? I don't know. Because stack them up. Like in my mind in high school, I was like, I'm going to travel to every country in the world. Oh my God. <laughs> and so I'm going to have 193 or 206 or whatever number it is right now of these little wooden boxes. I was just so proud of that. And yeah, I think I've been to close to 10. Mm -hmm. But you know, not 100 and something. That's like when people get those like US, like the map of the US and then they like, mark off or like chip off or scratch off or off off whatever (laughs) state they've been in. Uh-huh. And like you're, you're like, what do I count? Like you're like, I peed at this rest day, like this rest stop. Does does that mean I had a layover? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, there's an app, or at least there used to be an app where you could like mark the places where you've taken a poop. So you could like keep track of all, and like you could rate it. So like, stop. what was the quality of the place that you pooped at? Wow. Yeah. Sponsored by. <laughs> I wish I knew the name of the app. Someone told me about it. That's amazing. You used to have that um that guest book for my bathroom. <laughs> so fucking weird. Girl, I still have that thing. Get rid of that thing. <laughs> there could be nothing on this earth more germy than that book. Oh, I know. I know. It's going in the trash. As soon as I figure out where it is, because I just moved. Okay. But it's somewhere. Um no, I had this like guest book for my bathroom. And people, you've written in it, right? Yeah, I did. So when I cat sat for you, I was like, what on earth is this? Yeah. It was an interesting time in my life. That's fair. Mm -hmm. I saw it. I think I got the world market too. Oh, because weird shit comes from the world market. But I love it. I love it too. It's a really good place for Christmas shopping. Oh my gosh. I went there for Christmas shopping. Did you? The last like two or three years. That painting Uh of my dining room table is from there really Mm -hmm. i didn't know that Mm -hmm. um i was scrolling through your instagram recently and showing my partner yeah because i love you so much (laughs) and your marsha p johnson photo is there Uh and i was like this is the most beautiful piece of art she's still there i know i love her she there she there okay we got real derailed on topic right now yo we are collecting conversations in this episode oh amen Okay, so now we're going to get to hoarding. Oh, finally, right? Finally. Okay, so we're going to get a little vulnerable because we all love that. I have always been messy, as you know. Yes. And no matter how well I clean or how well my house is kept, I have a lot of anxiety about people being in my space and then judging my space. Yes. I know where this comes from, but we aren't getting that vulnerable. (laughs) (laughs) There's a limit to the vulnerability. That's season three. Yeah. So for that reason, I tend to not invite a lot of people over. And I've lived in my last apartment for like two and a half years. Mm -hmm. And with the exception of literally one event, I only had in total maybe 10 people in my space. Mm -hmm. And two of those people came into my space for the first time the day I was moving out. Wow. So like eight people. From we've had, what, 40 something episodes, Mm -hmm. 50 maybe at this point, um, one of which was recorded. At my house. At your house. Yeah. And I think we even had to re-record that episode. Didn't we? No. That was um, Avoidable Tragedies. Okay. Yep. Maslow. Yep. 
So it was a really good one. It was a really good one. My house had great energy. It's a really cute little spot. Yeah. But I have a lot of anxiety about people being there. So like even you came over one day after Leo passed away mm-hmm. and like we sat in the front yard because yeah. I was like, I was so distraught and I didn't have time to clean and I couldn't have the anxiety of people coming into my home on top of yeah. the rest of life. It's so anxiety inducing to have people in my space that even as I was moving out and I had a few friends to come help, I was so worried that they would think I was a disgusting human because I hadn't finished sweeping. Mm-hmm. But I'm like fucking moving, right? Yeah. Like it's the most natural thing in the world for there to be dust and shit on the floor. Yeah. So the messaging I was telling myself is that they were going to think I was dirty and if I'd stayed more on top of cleaning in the last two years that I wouldn't be they wouldn't be so grossed out. Like mm-hmm. and I wouldn't have such a horrible space. But now, like, I'm living with other people, and it's so it's a shared workload, and that yeah. makes life easier and better. Also, I live with kids, so people expect the house to not be perfect all the time. True. The advice I got before going to grad school and studying social work was, like, to do an inventory, basically, and maybe get a therapist. Because as you start studying psychological disorders as you start like really getting into the dsm you start to see yourself in a little bit of all these things right yeah i think i'd been so scared to do hoarding because i had this fear of like oh my god what if it's me right because i don't like people in my space that much i mean i love entertaining but you know you're not a hoarder i'm not like my house was never quite as bad as i thought it was no And I also don't have a problem throwing away things. I'm sentimental Mm -hmm. as fuck. But once I let go of something, I'm totally fine with it. Yeah. So hoarding disorder is an ongoing difficulty throwing away or parting with possessions because you believe that you need them or that you need to save them. You may experience distress at the thought of getting rid of these items and you gradually keep or gather a large number of items regardless of their actual value. Mm Mm-hmm. So I had to like check in with a couple of people while I was doing my notes for this episode. (laughs) But um, because hoarding often creates like this really cramped living condition, like there's stuff piled everywhere. You might only have, yeah, you might only have narrow pathways, your countertop sinks, stove, desks, stairwells, et cetera, might be cluttered with stuff. And so in my mind, I was like, yo, my countertops are so messy right now. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't have a dishwasher and I hate doing dishes. Yeah. But I cleaned them up, you know. You have a functional toilet. Right. That's a step in the right direction, (laughs) right? Your plumbing, like your power is on. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, like, I know that people who struggle with hoarding, it gets away from you so fast. Right. Like one minute you look around and you're like, oh, my house is fine. Like, it's pretty clean. Or you even just feel like you cleaned a little bit. And then a minute later, you turn back around and like, it's junk everywhere. So I was looking through pictures. There was like this rating scale of one to six pictures. And like where your clutter is on a scale of like, kind of messy to hoarding. And it was fascinating to see like all the various stages. Yeah objectively i was probably around a two what is this up here that is not on the scale that's not on the scale no ma'am okay well that's because i cleaned it before you came here (laughs) (laughs) send me a picture on your messiest day and i'll tell you where you were on the scale the messiest day there's clothes up there because my closet's not in this room right so like i just like i'm like oh i'll take that sweater back to the closet Mm -hmm. tomorrow Mm -hmm. and then i don't right right but you know there's there's shows 
surrounding hoarding and like everybody has like such a unique story and like absolutely for me and like stop me if you're gonna get to this but for me there's like two sets of hoarders it's like trash Mm -hmm. and then there's stuff yeah and like the trash is the one for me that's really scary Mm -hmm. because like if you're if you are if you've gotten to the point where you feel comfortable just living in a space that's not healthy right that that must be a really scary place to be in right yeah like and sheesh absolutely so i follow this person on tiktok and i don't remember their name right now we'll have to tag it in the show notes but they basically connect with people who struggle with hoarding and she cleans and she cleans for them and like she's sponsored by what are the sponges the with the smiley sponge daddy Uh Mm uh-huh we follow her on the pod i think do we Mm -hmm. i love that i'm so glad we're already there uh shout out to you Mm -hmm. we will definitely make note and like reach out and tell you you're doing a great job because we you know we're talking about you right Mm now but like how life altering is that to have your world feel so out of control and like with hoarding you genuinely get to a point where you don't know how to tackle it Yep. Which is so different. So one of the things about this is I have ADHD and like there's some executive functioning stuff around cleaning, which is why I was like, let me really inspect this more carefully because struggling with cleaning can have like some backdoor to hoarding, but hoarding in of itself is its own mental state, like, you know, classification that's different than ADHD. So what I determined was like, for me, looking around and like I did have stuff, you know, on countertops and in the sinks and on my desk and on the stairwell and the stove was not a big deal, but that's because I don't, I didn't cook like that. Mm-hmm. Except for that pasta recipe. <laughs> Except for that pasta <laughs> recipe. But like most of it was just stuff that needed to be tidy up, tidied up. It wasn't an excessive collection of things. Yeah. So... When there's no more room inside of your home, the clutter may spread to garage, vehicles, yard, and other storage areas, right? The car. The car, for I sure. I struggle with the car. Yep. So hoarding ranges from mild to severe. In some cases, hoarding may not have much impact on your life, while in others, it seriously affects your daily functioning. People with hoarding disorder may not see this as a problem, so getting them to take part in treatment can be super challenging. Like all the shows that are out there about hoarding, like there's some level of recognition that this is a problem for them. Yeah. But intensive treatment can help you understand how your beliefs and behaviors can be changed so that your life can be safer and more enjoyable. Mm. We'll talk about treatment options at the end. So I really wanted to hear from people who experience like hoarding issues themselves Mm -hmm. outside of the like TLC TV shows. Yeah. So I found a podcast and we'll tag that one in the show notes too. But she says, I've always had trouble throwing things away, magazines, newspapers, old clothes. What if I need them one day? I don't want to risk throwing something out that might be valuable. The large piles of stuff in our home kept growing. So it's difficult to move around and sit or eat together as a family. My husband is upset and embarrassed and we get into horrible fights. I'm scared when he threatens to leave me. My children won't invite their friends over and I feel guilty that the clutter makes them cry. But I get so anxious when I try to throw anything away. I don't know what's wrong with me and I don't know what to do. Oh my God. Like how debilitating that must be. Yeah. And also like how brave to look that in the face and acknowledge it. Yeah. A hundred percent. Like 
getting to the point of, okay, I see this, I recognize that it's tied to anxiety or obsessive thoughts or whatever else it may be tied to. And then saying, like, you get to a really vulnerable place of, but what do I do? Yeah. Like, it's destroying my relationships or at least hurting them. How do I fix this when you're looking at something that doesn't look fixable? Mm -hmm. So with hoarding disorder, items are usually saved because you believe that they are unique or that you will need them at some point in the future. Right. You feel emotionally connected to items that remind you of happier times or represent beloved people or pets. You feel safe and comforted when surrounded by things and you don't want to waste anything. Yeah. And this is a problem because you see yourself so easily in all four of these things, right? Oh, 100%. At least I do. For me, I'm thinking about, like, let's say you're at the store. Let's mm-hmm. say you're at Marshall's. Right. Okay. And you find something that's like five bucks and you're like, oh, this is great for five bucks. Yeah. And you're like, I'm going to buy this. But then the line is so far out the door, you're not willing to wait. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Like, there's... There's a level of, like, how accessible is this for me to bring home? To, mm-hmm. is, is it free? Is it expensive? Because if it's expensive, you're less likely to collect it. Right. If it's if you can just walk right at the door and take it home, you know, I, that's kind of the thing that I was thinking about is, like, how did all of the things get to your get house? There? Yeah. Well, and then once they're there, they're yours, and then they have some special place, I'm sure. Well, and I was talking to a friend at work about this recently. Um, her mom has been sick and moved into, like, an assisted care mm-hmm. setting. And she was looking around, like, I have all of my mom's clothes now, like, all of her things. Do I get rid of them? Like, right. My grandma was like, I don't remember making that pillowcase for yeah. you. So we, we are creating these relationships that might not even be real. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but I I see easily how people collect these things. Like, do you feel safe and comforted when you're surrounded by your things at home? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely you do, right? Mm-hmm. Do you not want to waste anything? Absolutely. Like, do you keep scraps of fabric or, yeah. at least I do, yarn? I keep craft things because I like to craft so much. I don't want to have to go out and buy new things, but I also have things that I have not used in years and probably won't use again. Yeah. But I don't want to throw it away because I'm like, "Mm, what if I use that Mm -hmm. or might use it? So I think that like, it's so easy for me to see the leap from like just going about normal everyday life to actually hoarding. So hoarding disorder is different from collecting. People who have collections, such as stamps or model cars, carefully search out specific items. They organize them and display their collections. Collections can be large, but they aren't usually cluttered. Also, they don't cause distress and problems functioning that are part of hoarding disorder. So like there's the tie-in to collecting and ownership, right? Mm -hmm. Like, is it impacting your life? Is it causing you distress? Is it causing the people around you distress? Mm -hmm. So there are a few risk factors to hoarding. Three, in fact. Personality. Many people who have hoarding disorder have a behavior style that includes troublemaking decisions, problem with attention, organization, and problem solving, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Family history. There's a strong association between having a family member who has hoarding disorder and having a disorder yourself. And then the third one is stressful life events. 
So some people develop hoarding disorder after experiencing a stressful life event that they have difficulty coping with, such as after the death of a loved one, a divorce, or losing possessions in a fire. Yeah. I've also, you all know that I used to work in foster care, and I've also seen a lot of foster kids, especially like teenagers who develop some form of hoarding disorder because they can't throw things away because they've been removed from their things for so long. Yeah. So like that makes there's total sense. it makes total sense, right? Like if you can't take your things with you, then when you do have your things, you want to collect them and hold on to them. So there's some comorbidities that are pretty common with hoarding, like depression, um which again, checks out like if you're depressed, you have low spoons, you're less likely to be able, even if you want to clean some things out. I know that there's a lot of anxiety associated with it, but depression doesn't help. Anxiety disorders, OCD, and ADHD. OCD being obsessive compulsive disorder and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. There are also some complications with hoarding. There's an increased risk of falls because you have like such oh, yeah. narrow pathways. Yeah. There's injury or being trapped by shifting or falling items, family conflicts, loneliness and social isolation, conditions that aren't clean and can be a health risk, to your point earlier, fire hazards, poor work performance, and even legal issues such as eviction. And there's really only, I mean, there are some treatments for the other comorbidities, but the thing that seems to be most helpful for those with hoarding disorder, the treatment's cognitive behavioral therapy, so CBT. And several of the people that I was reading about who have hoarding disorder, who have gone through CBD even years later, still struggle with hoarding, but are like still using the tools that they learned in CBD and CBT. And that seems to be really helpful. Mm -hmm. So we will link not only the podcast, speaking of psychology, but also the podcasts that are done by people with hoarding disorder. Um, So you can listen to more of their lived experiences. Mm. Wow. Wild. So wild. I'm also interested in animal hoarding because that's like a whole other chapter, right? That needs a whole other podcast in of itself. Like we can't do animal hoarding and possession slash trash hoarding at the same time. Right, right. Another episode. Oh my gosh. There was like a big animal hoarding case recently. There are always big animal hoarding cases. I wonder what the difference between animal hoarding, like breeding versus like hoarding probably a very fine line (laughs) which is terrifying yeah yeah the i was about to bring up ethics but i was like let me do a little bit more research (laughs) before i start passing any form of judgment because who am i yeah for sure well great job thank you let's take a quick break okay and when we come back we'll talk about some history okay we're back okay today we're gonna be talking about cosmic horror not cosmic i can't it's a hard word for me to say horror 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 the world (laughs) (laughs) um so what are your favorite genres for books and movies oh uh i love historical fiction Duh. Uh, nonfiction. Uh-huh. Memoir biographies. Yes. I can get into some sci-fi. Like, okay. 
I have been reading, let's see, we know I read 1984 recently. Yep. I love dystopian novels. Yep. Parable of the Sower is mm-hmm. another kind of like sci-fi-ish yeah. dystopian novel. I don't, I've read one Stephen King book. No, two Stephen King books. One of them was on writing though. So like his book about writing. Got it. Well, we're going to talk about him a little bit. Okay. Because the inspiration for him, you know, kind of getting into his writing style is the, is, is cosmic horror, which is the genre really? that we'll be talking about. Never have I ever heard of cosmic horror. It's kind of an umbrella thing. Like so many things fall under it. It's, I mean, it's just like horror or sci-fi. It's like this weird thing that you could put so many things in that box. Okay. Um, so my brain went cosmic horror mm-hmm. to cosmic, meaning astrology, like yeah. the stars, yep. to Zodiac. Mm-hmm. And then I had this whole thing about, man, Zodiac Killer would be a really cool like book series. Yeah. Like how each of the Zodiac signs like kill people. Oh. And I have like this whole thought train of thought and i was like zodiac killer sounds really familiar yeah and then realized it was a serial killer like actual serial killer so i had like this whole like stream of consciousness moment happening that i wanted to share with you this is less true crime okay more abstract frankenstein yes kind of yes okay so today we're going to talk about the genre that paved the way for science fiction and horror as we know it today and it inspired authors like stephen king uh, we're going to be talking about cosmic horror. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun. The father of cosmic horror is H.P. Lovecraft. <gasps> so we're going to be talking Love about it. We're going to be breaking him down a little bit. But just to kind of break down further the characteristics of the genre, he states in his essay called The Supernatural Horror in Literature, these are all the things that kind of make up the genre of cosmic horror. So... I get H.P. Lovecraft and H.G. Wells mixed up. They are not the same person. So remind me, are you getting into H.P. Lovecraft? Yes, we're going to talk about his whole life. Perfect. Let's do that. His life and works. So for cosmic horror, some themes that you'll see are fear of the unknown and unknowable. Ooh. So you're on the right track with space. This is like a very like... Okay, so... We're talking like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Douglas Adams-y vibes. Kind of, yes. Okay. So there's there's themes of space and the unknown, but like the the points in think of cosmic horror as the fear of being pushed out of a spaceship into the abyss. That's where the horror comes from, right? It's got some science fiction-y elements, the fact that you're in space, but it's really just about the knowledge and the psychology piece that we don't know. So it's less about the pew pew Star Wars kind of vibe. Right. And more about the psychology and weird vibe. Does that make sense? It does. Okay. I'm with you. The quote, fear and awe we feel when confronted by a phenomena beyond our comprehension, whose scope extends beyond the narrow fields of the human affairs and boasts of cosmic significance is what HP says. So he's like, it's shit we, we we don't understand. So I think that that is definitely really scary. That's like, oh, the, that's absolutely. where all of the, the roots of basically fear comes from. It was like stuff we don't understand, right? Yeah. Well, and we talked about fears versus phobias. Yeah. So fears being like things that we don't understand or can't predict. Phobias being things that are just like irrational 
Right. And I guess this kind of straddles the line of the two. Right. Yeah. Okay. So. Or has a foot in both sides, maybe. Absolutely. Part of a piece of it, too, is realizations that there is some abstract truth. So maybe it doesn't quite fit in those molds. So realizing that things may be in both camps, like you were saying. Other themes consist of there being a naturalistic fusion of horror and science fiction, in which presumptions about the nature of reality are erred or false. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're, things are not always what they seem. The theme of repressed awareness of our place in the universe and the realization that we are internally flawed. That's Jesus a good taught one, right? me that. What? Jesus <laughs> taught me that. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> There's also often protagonists who are helpless in the face of unfathomable and unescapable powers, which reduce humans from a privileged position to insignificant and incompetence. So being taken down on that totem pole, basically. Gotcha. So yeah, it's, it's, it's that something is bigger than you and it's not what you thought, basically, right? Mm-hmm. So there's definitely an element of space and time in cosmic horror, kind of like we were saying. And this theme is ejected into science fiction, but it's not identical. So cosmic horror was the stepping stone to what we what's evolved to be science fiction kind of today. Science fiction, which sometimes is shortened to sci-fi, is a genre of speculative fiction, which typically deals with imaginative and futuristic concepts such as advanced science and technology, space exploration, time travel, parallel universes, um, all that good stuff. So you know science fiction when you see it, right? Yeah. Cosmic horror is different in the fact it's a little bit more eerie. It's a little bit more abstract. It's a little bit more psychological. So if Hot Tub Time Machine were a slasher film, (laughs) it would be cosmic horror. Not, no, no, because we're going to get into horror in a second, too. Okay. So horror has like an element of violence to it, which cosmic horror has in a different way. So instead of stabbing somebody, which is horror, horror, having them being, like I said, pushed down to the to the abyss sure. would be cosmic horror. Okay. Or them being left alone on a planet, you know, by themselves is cosmic horror. Okay. So less gore. Right. There it's it's Ooh. equidistant between the two. Have you seen the TV show The 100? No, that's new, right? Not new new. I watched it over COVID. So it's been it's been out for a little while. Okay. But it's uh takes place in the future and all of humanity is basically living on these spaceships. Oh. And they send 100 children like delinquent teenagers who are supposed to be incarcerated to earth to see if the radiation levels are oh. at an inhabitable Whoa, level now. that's fucked up it's so good it has like five seasons i think oh wow. i binged the shit out of that show but it sounds like that right like mm-hmm. it's this idea it takes place in outer space so it's kind of got this cosmic feel to it mm-hmm. But they're literally like sent out of the, of the spaceship, yeah, to potentially die on Earth from radiation poisoning. Yeah. Okay, so that's kind of the that vibe. Would fit. I okay. would say that would fit. So also definitely watch that TV show. It's yeah. so good. No, that just sounds good. I'm gonna write that down. So kind of talking about horror. 
So following the 17th century development of the novel as literary form, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, if you've ever heard of it, uh, which was in 1818. Can you yeah, she's like the mother of sci-fi. I know. I know. It's crazy. Yeah. Also, The the Last Man, which was, when, was in 1826, they helped define the form of science fiction novels. Brian Aldiss has argued that Frankenstein was the first work of science fiction ever. Mm-hmm. Edgar Allan Poe wrote several, several stories considered to be science fiction, including the... Mask of the Red Death? No, I couldn't. The Unparalleled Adventure of the One Hans Fall. And and that particular work... (laughs) That featured a trip to the moon. So, like, we're kind of getting into, you know, there's a lot of overlap with these two genres. Jules Verne was noted for his attention to detail and science accuracy, especially in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Mm -hmm. In 1887, the novel... El Encrompit by Spanish author Enrique Gaspar uh, Rimbaud. Please forgive me. Introduced the <laughs> first love, time machine. <laughs> I love that we never look up how to pronounce anything. No, I for don't. This podcast. I have no time. You can tell we read a lot, but actually have never heard these words out loud. <laughs> no, no, no. I took German, and I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, so there's there's a lot of kind of things coming out of the word woodworks in like the 1800s, which is interesting. Like they're they're definitely like ahead of the game as far as understanding or developing these concepts of science fiction and cosmic ideologies. So it reminds me a little bit of American Horror Story: The Season Asylum, uh-huh. where takes place in like what the 80s and a woman's locked up in an asylum and they're afraid of aliens right it's mm-hmm. a season with the nuns there was a lot happening that season are they afraid of aliens yeah like that was the big thing for asylum right was the aliens i totally forgot about that but the thing i liked about american horror story is the decade that the movie or the season is in highlights the fear that people were experiencing at that time right so like in the 80s 1980s not 1880s there was a big fear of aliens right so i remember being in this class where they talk about monsters policing the realm what is known and like anything that we don't know we create a monster on the outside of it so Mm. that because we're afraid of it so like thinking about aliens or thinking about the 1800s when people are creating monsters Like, they are able to control their environment enough to not have a fear within their environment anymore. So now they're controlling things they don't know by creating those monsters. Yeah. Which is just kind of fascinating. Well, and, like, in the 80s, you know, they'd gone to the moon a decade decade and some change earlier. So, like, that's terrifying. Yeah. And there's this huge push for – they were putting a lot of money – into space exploration during that time mm-hmm. too so that makes total sense yeah you have a cat i know she's she would like everyone to know she's here hi dolly so many critics consider hg wells as one of science fiction's most important authors or even the shakespeare of science fiction mm-hmm. his notable science fiction works include the time machine I'm reading that, too. It's on my bedside table. Oh, are you? Cool. Uh-huh. Random, but go ahead. The Island of Dr. Monroe, mm-hmm. The Invisible Man, which the remake with 
was really good. The War of the Worlds, which yep. is a huge science fiction. So for me, when I was reading about cosmic horror, I was like, does War of the Worlds fit in cosmic horror or does it fit in cosmic or does it fit in science fiction? And it has a little bit of both. In a Venn diagram, it would be in the center. It would be. It okay. totally would be. A hundred percent. And so it's it's it kind of it's this very unique genre that has then helped develop these more modern Mm -hmm. genres Mm -hmm. so there's not a ton of like cosmic horror specific stuff now but there were a lot in the 90s and the 80s and and so forth and so on that's a really good history connection too i'm still like thinking about yeah the moon landing and aliens i'm sorry continue oh you're fine the first, or at least one of the first, recorded science fiction films was in 1920. It was the, A Trip to the Moon, uh-huh. directed by French filmmaker George Melis. It was profoundly influential to later filmmakers, and it brings a different kind of creativity and fantasy to the cinematic medium. In addition, Malaise, innovative editing and special effects techniques were widely um, imitated and became important elements of the medium so we've got things that people are writing down and reading and then it's developing into the the cinematic which i think like that's how we consume i mean people do read stephen king now yeah for sure who was very very influenced by hp lovecraft and cosmic horror but the way that i'm used to consuming it is like from the theater (laughs) you know yeah I mean, think of Star Wars. Think of, you know, all of the Marvel movies. I mean, all these things are, are hu- they're like the biggest franchises that exist mm-hmm. in our mm-hmm. in our society today. Would Rocky Horror Picture Show count as cosmic horror? Oh, that's a great question. Oh, my God. I don't know. Because May- it doesn't take place in outer space, but there are definitely mm-hmm. aliens. We'll see. We're going to read a little bit more on the genre, and maybe at the end we can kind of decide what we think. Okay, so TBD. TBD. So Howard Philip Lovecraft, better known as H.P. Lovecraft, is the guy behind this whole phenomenon. And he was born on August 20th, 1890, in Providence, Rhode Island. Okay. So H.P. would grow up to have a tragic life filled with little joys. Naturally. (laughs) So what are we going to do? Become a serial killer or a novelist? I mean, really, those are your only two paths. So this would ultimately feed his imagination and allow him to be one of the most influential novelists and cosmic horror slash science fiction writers of all time. So he was an only child and his mother came from a wealthy family, which would come in handy because after many years of (laughs) untreated syphilis, um, his dad was <laughs> committed to a hospital called Butler Hospital in Providence. Huh. It's so sad. It's so sad. Just also, like, I spilled it. my beer. So I've been like over here cleaning it up with tissues so it's not distract <laughs> you. And all I, I mean, I was listening, but I was not expecting untreated syphilis. Untreated syphilis. You spilled your beer? That's okay. So untreated syphilis, his father went to an went asylum. Went to basically, yeah. He spent his remaining days in this hospital and passed away only five years after being committed. So that's, I mean, it's kind of a long time. I mean, 
and treated syphilis as like a very slow, I know. painful, oh, so sad. Oh, so not great cured. death. Ah. What's interesting is that it's it's unclear whether H.P. Lovecraft ever knew about his father's true condition and like the cause of it. I mean, it totally makes sense. Like, you're not probably not going to tell your kids that you have untreated syphilis, but we don't well, know whether he, he knew that. I mean, I, there's also the question of, like, did he even know it was untreated syphilis? That's a great question. Like, they may have determined it at some point once he entered the institution what it was, but did he know? That's a great question. Unclear at this time. After the death of his father, H.P. and his mother moved in with her parents, Whipple and Robbie. Great names. Right? Whipple. Whipple. Whipple stepped in as the father figure. Okay. He introduced H.P. to classical literature as well as darker stories, gothic novels, and they often had a paranormal undertone or plotline. Mm-hmm. When his grandmother passed away in 1896, however, the paranormal plotlines became a little too close for comfort. The mood in the house totally changed after she died. Things seemed darker and colder and more damp. The warmth of his own mother became more distant. And his mother and grandfather began dressing in all black all the time to mourn the death of his grandmother, which is super creepy. Yeah. This is when he started having nightmares. And these nightmares would later kind of be influences for some of his characters. One particular na- nightmare became recurring where he was terrorized by a figure with no face. Ooh. Oh, I know. Earliest known writings were written around age seven. He became obsessed with Greek and Roman mythology, which goes we all back went through that phase, to, right? But it all it goes back to, to science fiction too, because there's all these like story arcs that are mimicked and blah blah blah. At the same time he started becoming interested in astrology and chemistry. Um he found out that the birds and the bees, like he found out like how sex worked, basically by reading an anatomy book instead of like being told. So very academic, this kid is, right? Yeah. So not surprisingly, his family has gone, you know, into this depressive mourning state over the grandmother. So he's not doing well in school because there's a lot of trauma, trauma. happening at home. But he's still learning. He's a, he's a very smart kid. Yeah, there's a difference between learning and performing. Yeah. Especially in school. Like, you can pick up, you can be a sponge and still not perform well for your teachers. That's true. Uh, His life did become more and more isolated. And this is when his social anxiety began to build. And he became kind of a withdrawn kid. And he was still in elementary school at this time. He had a lot happening in those formative years. I know. Poor fella. Over the next 10 years, he entered, like, a solitary life, rarely leaving his home and living with his mother. He started to develop his writing style at this time. He looked down at the fluff writing. He didn't want to do anything mainstream. He wanted to be weird and angsty. And that was just kind of his thing. Mm -hmm. And anything that was like superficial, not interested in. So he was going through his emo phase. 100%. That never, he never got over. Sure. (laughs) He wrote poetry that complimented Edgar Allan Poe and other more complex pieces filled with metaphors and deeper complex thought. Many of his pieces took place in an era that mirrored, like an area that mirrored New England. So he's very Nicholas Sparks in that way. Like he, he you know, he picked a spot and like that's where all his shit is. Yeah. It wasn't until his mother was committed to the same hospital. 
that his dad was. <gasps> I know that he came out of his shell. So that's super interesting is I don't know if it was related to her or not, but but like potentially a really interesting catalyst. A hundred percent. So when she goes away, he then kind of starts to, to blossom. Wait, which makes you question more about his upbringing. Right. But his life does get more and more strange. Despite publicly being racist and anti-Semitic, HP met and married a woman named Sonia, who was a Jewish woman from Brooklyn, and the couple settled in Brooklyn. So it's this weird, I don't, I I really don't know. I read a lot of things, like he's got some pieces that are pretty fucking racist and pretty anti-semitic but his wife was jewish yeah wasn't it also like dr seuss who was similar right i think we talked about that and we couldn't determine one way or the other yeah like there was definitely some like undertones but this guy was obviously yeah he wrote some really shitty articles yeah but then married sonia so unclear sonia was a business owner and she owned a successful hat shop and sonia was willing to support them financially as hp worked on his weird sci-fi novels. Interestingly, Sonia noted that HP was not particularly interested in sex. In fact, she had to get him like some textbooks about sex to pique his interest in the subject, which is, it kind of goes back to what we know about his childhood. Sure. He's just a weird guy. Fascinating. Weird guy. Yeah. Do we have a psychoanalysis? We don't. Okay. But we know that their relationship was complex probably because he's a piece of shit (laughs) and he's got trauma yeah but the hp at this point only had two living relatives which were his two aunts who were also racist and anti-semitic and they did not want him to be with sonia uh so sonia ends up relocating to cincinnati alone so they kind of separate after her business fails in brooklyn and then she fell ill so she got really sick i don't know what specific illness but it says that she got super super sick and i don't know whether it was like psychological or physical it would be interesting if it was psychological because hb is just surrounded by all these people who are being committed basically lovecraft also relocated home after his apartment in Brooklyn was burgled and he started hating New York City without his wife. So he did miss her. He wanted to go back to Providence to be with his aunts who lived there and he never saw his wife again. So they just separated. They didn't get divorced. They just mm. parted ways. Did their own thing. Did their own thing. It's wild. It's no secret at all that H.P. Lovecraft's life is a book out of a lemony snicket novel. <laughs> It's, it's a series of unfortunate events for sure. So let's break down how these life events influence his writing. His best known work is called The Call of Chulu, and it was written in 1928. I included a summary of the book just so we can see kind of what the themes of his writing were and just how ahead of his time he was with some of his supernatural themes. Okay. Quote, the story of The Call of Chulu is divided into three chapters each following the story's narrator, Francis Wayland Thurston, who was great name. Yeah, these are these are good names. As he recounts his discovery of various notes and accounts, all collected to a mysterious cult in 1926. The first chapter, The Horror in the City, follows Thurston as he looks through the notes of his recently deceased great aunt, or excuse me, uncle, George Gamble Angel, a professor of language at Brown University. 
Among his notes, Thurston also discovers a small sculpture of a strange creature that he describes as being aspects of an octopus, dragon, and human. It's here that the perspective and narration switches to the professor, Angel, through his left-behind notes. Angel discovered that the sculpture was the work of a man named Henry Wilcox, a student at the Rhode Island School of Design who based his art off a strange dream that he had of a mysterious monolithic city underneath the ocean. (laughs) Angel also discovered reports of a spike in madness from all around the world at the same time as, as Wilcox's dream. Wilcox's sculpture and mention of the word Chulu in his dream, a name all too familiar to Angel. Like a majority of Lovecraft's work, The Call of Chulu deals with the themes of cosmic horror that began to emerge in the early 1900s. The story explores the ideas that humanity is incapable of dealing with forces greater than their own, and that we are insignificant when compared to the vast universe and the creatures that dwell within it. Is he wrong, though? No. No. (laughs) Many have interpreted the story as a warning of the terror of the terror of unknown. Chulu and the city rest at the bottom of the ocean, an area of the world that is still shrouded in mystery and ambiguity even today, which is totally true. Yeah, we know so much more about space than we do the ocean. Which is wild. So wild. Lovecraft states in his story, as well as in his other works, that when he encountered these unknown terrors, it drives humans insane. Others have analyzed the story of Lovecraft's personal critique of the sciences of the 1920s. The opening of the story even states that while science has hurt us little so far, it will eventually discover something that will either lead to the destruction of humanity or drive us to flee into ignorance. End quote. Wow. Fascinating. I'm intrigued. So this is by far his most popular body of work. Even though his summary, you know, in the summary, we can see that the uh, the accessing information via dreams was very important. Knowing what we know about his life, it seems interesting that he lived a life of solitude with his only comforts coming from his own studies and his own dreams. Mm-hmm. To me, it seems like he's insinuating that these are like, the, you know, the only true comforts. And, right. And, but it's also scary, right? Yeah. Maybe it comes from his ex- like abandonment stuff. Unclear. And maybe it's just about, like, that the things that you love can turn on you. Ooh. Oh, interesting. After doing some more digging, I did discover that... So, HP was kind of, like, the, the point of origin for my research, because I knew he was a super fascinating guy, and I wanted to learn more about him. But then learning that there's this whole, you know, that he started this whole genre mm-hmm. was super fascinating. Quote, Lovecraftian horror sometimes used interchangeably with cosmic horror, is the subgenre of horror fiction and weird fiction that emphasizes the horror of the unknown and uncomprehensible more than gore or other elements of shock. So there's, there's not, it's not bloody. Right. Which we've kind of talked about. So HP's work emphasizes themes of cosmic dread, forbidden and dangerous knowledge, madness, non-human influences on humanity, religion, and superstition. All of those things can be super scary. So I went down this rabbit hole of all of, you know, what's common at the root of all of these fears. And I think it comes down, I think it comes back to a larger conversation of human existence and exploring issues related to purpose, 
meaning and the life, like the value of life, Mm -hmm. right? HP was an atheist. And I wonder how much discussions he was trying to invoke in his writings regarding larger conversations, you know, about religion and about like belief. Belief. Yeah, the whole belief system. Yeah. After Sonia died, so she ended up passing away, he had no money. And he did his best to survive by ghostwriting and selling his writings to newspapers and magazines. He was a ghostwriter for Harry Houdini. In fact, <gasps> isn't that great? Really? Cool. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. But his true love was writing these uh, complex and well-thought-out novels, which unfortunately were really hard to sell. So it took up to five years to sell a book that he'd written. So he's making no money. He's basically right. living in poverty, right? He often didn't eat, and when he did, it was probably rotten food. But the year before his death, he had written only three poems. I know. And H.P. died of cancer in March of 1937 at just 46 years old. And he was essentially unknown during his life. How tragic. I know. But his legacy certainly lived on. One of his old friends, August Derleth, founded a publishing house called Akram House with the like exclusive intention to publish H.P. Lovecraft and his works. Wow. And that's a good friend. That's a great friend. Yeah. He, pu- he published his books in hard copy, one after the other. And the success was little at first. However, the books caught on in France. Unsurprising. Oui, oui. The French had a huge respect for Edgar Edgar Allan Poe and H.P. Lovecraft's work, complementing a similar style of writing. Other books with similar themes began coming out. You know, War of the Worlds came out with a greater, larger demand with darker content. Stephen King has cited H.P. Lovecraft as a major influence of his works. He also argued that all works in the horror genre that were written after Lovecraft were influenced by him. Alan Moore, a comic book creator, also claimed that Lovecraft was an influence of his graphic novel. In 2016, Lovecraft was inducted into the Museum of Pop Culture, Science Fiction, and Fantasy Hall of Fame. That same year, a book was published called Lovecraft Country. Lovecraft Country is a, quote, dark fantasy horror novel by Matt Ruff, exploring the conjunction between the horror fiction of H.P. Lovecraft and the racism in the United States during the era of Jim Crow laws, as experienced by black (gasps) science fiction fans. And that was created into a show. Oh, my gosh. Okay, I have to write that one down, Mm -hmm. because that sounds really fascinating. Uh, But that is H.P. Lovecraft and the history of cosmic horror. That was incredible. Mm. Never have I ever heard of such a thing. I know. It's a weird subgenre thing that kind of bleeds in. It's kind of a gray area, but super fascinating to me. Oh, yeah. Um, so, you know, instead of gore, think of like blobs and and less violence, but still like weird and creepy and, you know. Yeah. I am. Um, instead um, of blood, it's goo, you know. Things that seep. Sure. I think anything that seeps is like just destined to be in a horror movie. Yeah, that's or fair. Or film or a book. That's fair. I also feel like I need to update my reading list. I don't do a lot of horror because reasons. But I am also like super interested in 
touching these different genres. Mm -hmm. So like having at least a foundational knowledge. So like H.G. Wells, I have The Time Machine. I've read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Also seen the movie. Mm -hmm. It was great. Needs to be on our cult list if it's not already. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I've never read H.P. Lovecraft. So adding it to the list now. Add him to the list. Add him to the list. And I love this because now, like, understanding the trauma and the childhood and the impact on this entire, like, even the larger genre of horror and sci-fi, like, very, very cool. Thank you. It's all psychology, baby. Yeah, All psychology. Well, I mean, just out of that, the intersections are pretty clear. It's, It's the psychology piece. Yeah, and it's the fact that I'm going to be collecting more books. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. We kept the episode pretty long this week, so we can keep intersections pretty short. Yeah, so psychology, trauma, I'm getting a new book. And a partridge in a pear tree. And a partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> Woo! Okay, so if you're interested, guys, in getting that uh, The Secret uh, Cocktail Recipes, head on over to our Patreon account to pick those up. Follow us on Instagram. We've got some fun interactive stuff. We'd love to hear from everybody. Don't forget to leave a five-star review if you're new. Welcome. And hopefully we'll have some information about merch coming up here shortly. That's a plan. That's a goal. (laughs) It's a big goal. And this is a big second season for us so far. We're loving it. We're so excited. Thank you guys for being so supportive. We love you so much. If you support us, blink twice. And if you're out there, keep listening. Thank you for listening to Podcasts Without an Audience. Find us on social media at Pod Without an Odd. You can find us on Instagram or Facebook. Or find us on the web at podcastwithoutanaudience.com. Shoot us an email at podwithoutanaudd at gmail.com. Our cover art is created by an actual angel, Ashley Acevedo. Our music is by Zach Smith and Ted Oliver. Editing by Jacob Beeson. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and all of our nerdy content. Please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us today. Oh, and check out our Patreon for exclusive content and our pasta recipe. Again, thanks, and keep listening.